Hi everyone, welcome back. We're Asiatic Affairs. I'm Bernice, and this is the Narratives of Asia podcast. Before we launch into more of the interesting stuff, we just wanted to let everyone know about Asiatic Affairs, who we are, and what we do. We are a new UCL society looking to create a platform for students of all backgrounds in order to engage in open, constructive discussion on issues in Asia. From geopolitics to business, the environment and technology, we aim to raise awareness and increase engagement with each issues in Asia, as well as looking to understand their impact on the wider world. If you're interested, check out what we do on Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify at UCL Asiatic Affairs. Our topic for this two-part podcast is a snapshot of the socio-economic impact of COVID-19 in East Asia, the Southeast Asia region, South Asia, and the Middle East. We will be touching bases with issues like China's global economic integration, impacts on the worst hit sectors like that of travel and tourism, and finally dispelling the myth behind the uncannily low number of cases detected in South Asia. But before we dive into our discussion, we would just like to introduce ourselves. My name is Prisha Pandari. I am a first-year history, economics, and politics student from India based in Singapore and Manila. Along with me, I have Bernice, a first-year European social and political studies student who is from Hong Kong. So since it started in China, let's first look at the present situation there. How would you describe the general impact of COVID-19 on China? As a pandemic that started in China and is now, of course, a worldwide emergency, its economic impact on China is profound. And if we want to put this into perspective, China's GDP contracted 13% during the first two months of this year. And we can almost be sure that the actual impact is much bigger than these figures because the lockdown started only from late January. So on one hand, we can see China's supply chains being roiled as factories are unable to operate. As we know, there are many government measures in place in order to halt the spread of the virus in the workplace. These measures, although they are necessary for public health, have of course directly reduced revenues for companies and frankly they have also severely hurt many businesses. On the other hand, we also see the shrink in demand for Chinese goods as the world cuts its imports. This is significant given China's status as the world's largest exporter of goods who makes up a third of manufacturing globally. And with all this going on, you can definitely imagine how domestic unemployment especially those in the service sector and in small and medium-sized enterprises, has soared incredibly over the past few months. Considering this integration of the Chinese economy in global markets, how has this epidemic impacted other countries, particularly in the region? Well, because China acts as an important link between the Asian and global supply chains, regional economies that are deeply integrated within these networks such as Singapore and Vietnam have been hit severely. We can understand the degree of economic integration if we look at the manufacturing industry in these neighboring countries. In the case of South Korea, lots of factories have been forced to shut due to regulations, but also because of a shortage of parts from China. Samsung, for example, has had to shift some of the parts it sources from China to its two factories in Vietnam. And this, of course, works for some major um, corporates. However, it's not always an option for lower margin sectors like those in the textile industry, where producers often need to find very cost-effective suppliers elsewhere and then or dip into their inventories until they run out. So are there any industries that stand out for being hit the hardest? In my opinion, the service sector is definitely among the most adversely affected. And particularly the travel and tourism industry is under enormous pressure. 
Some say that the coronavirus is the biggest challenge to tourism since World War II, especially with global events cancelled, non-essential travel restricted, and holiday makers having to self-isolate at home. Hotels and airlines are suffering tremendously these days, and this leads to many layoffs in the, in the industries um, and workers having to take unpaid leave, which of course once again feeds into the shrinking demand for goods and services. And the severity of this impact would depend on how long the pandemic lasts, and it could still be exacerbated by restrictive measures like extended impositions of blanket bans. We see this, for example, when the Australian government previously announced a travel ban on arrivals from mainland China. On the contrary, are there some notable industries which have gained because of this epidemic? Well, some sectors have, of course, cultivated during these times. As schools are suspended and people work remotely, we can see online communications and education platforms like Zoom thriving. We also see social networking services like TikTok and House Party taking advantage of the current social distancing across the globe. And many assume that e-commerce has gained as consumers change their shopping habits to avoid contagion. This is perhaps true in the short run, as we see huge demands for orders and deliveries, as well as products being sold out. However, to me, in the long term, with supply chain issues, product shortages, and potentially declining consumer demand, e-commerce growth might not be as bright as what we see now, especially if the economy is going to go into recession. Naturally, the SARS epidemic of 2003 was accompanied with grave economic costs as well. How is this different, and how have the governments across the region responded to these costs? If we compare COVID-19 to the SARS epidemic during 2002 and 2003, the Chinese economy now is much bigger and more integrated with other countries. Trade within the Association of Southeast Asian Nations plus three region is taking a hit during the pandemic. Many Asian governments have proposed enormous amounts of stimulus packages for their Baltic economy. Japan, for example, has approved a 108 trillion yen package. That is worth about a fifth of its GDP. Singapore, on the other hand, has also unveiled its third set of measures in three months. In total, the city-state stimulus now stands at some 60 billion Singapore dollars. That is 12% of its GDP. There is no doubt that these fresh injections are crucial. However, many economists have also said that any amount of fiscal injections, liquidity boosts or interest rate cuts would not be as effective as successfully containing the outbreak. So in other words, we should really see these monetary stimulus as band-aids that are mitigating the negative shock only in the short term. So it is safe to say right now that East Asian and Southeast Asian countries would not be meeting their growth targets this year. Well, even with these fiscal injections, until the government can fully contain the outbreak, it will be very difficult to achieve economic growth targets set up previously, and many countries in the region are likely to go into recession. For instance, Singapore, with the most optimistic forecast, is now predicting a growth of just under 0.6% this year. All right, so we're going to move over to South Asia now. All countries in South Asia have coronavirus cases, and notably, all these countries have weak public health care systems. Coupled with the fact that this is the most populous region of the world at just under 1.9 billion, it is a particularly vulnerable hotspot for an outbreak. The worst affected countries in the region, and the only ones with official cases over 1,000 as of now, are India and Pakistan. 
Right. So how is India controlling the outbreak? And what are some of the most pressing issues it is facing? The number of infected in India is 11,933 right now. And the nation is currently under a lockdown to control the virus till the 3rd of May. Because of the sheer size and population of the country, it has become particularly hard to zero down on emerging hotspots. And two issues have made containing the virus a hard task in the country. Number one is mass exodus of migrant workers. And number two is large gatherings taking place despite a lockdown being in place. Apart from this, there is also a huge deficiency of protective equipment for healthcare workers. And this combination of a weak public healthcare and large population translates into extremely low testing rates. Would you be able to tell us more on how the mass exodus unfolded and whether there were any particular gatherings that have contributed to a spike in cases like the case in Malaysia? A majority of daily wage workers in urban areas in India come from rural villages. And when the nationwide lockdown was imposed, they had no source of income and many were evicted from their rented residences as well. So this naturally triggered a large scale migration of workers from urban areas to rural villages. And with interstate transportation shut down because of the lockdown, this was done by foot. At the moment, makeshift camps and feeding centers have been set up by the center to tackle this. But of course, the benefits of these have not reached many. As for gatherings since the lockdown, multiple rallies and congregations have been carried out. And the most infamous of these incidents is undoubtedly the Indian Tablighi Jamaat event in Hazrat Nizamuddin in Delhi, which immediately contributed to 65% of fresh cases, or about 1,100 infections of the day. What are some ways that COVID-19 has impacted the Indian economy? As for the economic impact, anyone who has been following the Indian economy for a while would know to expect the absolute worst. Many prominent economists, including former RBI Governor Raghuram Rajan, believe this period to be the greatest crisis faced by the Indian economy since its independence in 1947. India entered the crisis itself with a huge fiscal deficit, with growth plummeting to 4.7% last year and unemployment at its highest in 45 years. Many firms in the MSME sector would not be able to survive this. A relief package has been rolled out, but it is tiny compared to that of other large economies like US or Germany. But again, fiscal constraints concerning healthcare expenditure for the Indian government are much higher as well. As for Pakistan, how is the civilian government and the military that have obviously clashed several times in the country's history been working together to control this epidemic? Uh, when it comes to the general impact, Pakistan, like all South Asian countries, mirrors the hurdles faced by India. The number of infected in Pakistan are around 5,988 as of now. Prime Minister Imran Khan initially downplayed the severity of the virus and, and ignored calls to enforce the lockdown because it could cripple the already weak economy. But it only served to highlight the existing tensions within the military because it was deployed across the country and it set military checkpoints up in cities to enforce a lockdown anyway. Just like Nizamuddin in India, an event organized by the Pakistani Tablighi Jamaat in Lahore led to a spike in cases, and thousands were quarantined. Notably, both events in Delhi and Lahore were attended by foreign nationals. And this particular incident was, resp was responsible for the introduction of the virus to the Gaza Strip as well via two Palestinians who attended the event. I say, what about the Pakistani economy? Is it as severely affected as the Indian economy? Uh, Pakistan entered the epidemic particularly fragile to start with as well. Only last year did Pakistan go to the IMF for another bailout. And again, it is the informal sector where tens of millions are engaged in daily wage labor, which stands to lose the most at the moment. 
Now, Pakistan and India are both oil-importing countries and obviously stand to gain from the oil price plunges. But it is not going to compensate for other challenges in either of these countries. It seems that the social issues that you, um, you highlighted, as well as the response of the public health care, have some similarities across these countries in the region. Yes. In a nutshell, all across South Asia, public health care is weak. Testing is extremely low. And most countries in South Asia have suspiciously low figures. I mean, in Afghanistan, despite a daily trickle of people from Iran, which is one of the global hotspots of COVID-19, the official number of cases are only 784. These surprisingly low figures are simply the result of low testing. Population is high, they live very close to each other in these communal societies, and this makes social distancing quite hard. There are a large number of poor as well who live off daily wages, and relief packages may, number one, be inadequate, and number two, fail to reach them, which is a highly likely scenario, and we see that happening in India right now. A lack of planning and organization, along with very restricted testing, really does mask the severity of the outbreak in the region, and it is causing the brunt of ground-level difficulties to fall on the poor in South Asia. Right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in, and the two of us will be continuing our discussion in the second part of this series. We will be exploring the socioeconomic impact of COVID-19 on the Middle East next time. Some of the topics we'll look at include the diplomatic um, developments between countries in the region with the US over trade and exports, the fall of oil prices in the Gulf Cooperation Council region, Palestinian and Israel cooperations in the efforts to contain the coronavirus, as well as looking closer at regions like Yemen, riddled with years of interstate wars and refugee crises, and how they were coping under the pressures um, of the pandemic. So if you would like to know more about these topics, make sure you keep an eye on our next episode. And just before we properly end, I wanted to quickly explain what Narratives of Asia really is. So we are a new branch of Asiatic Affairs, which takes the form of a podcast channel. We drop episodes regularly where we host either one-to-one discussions or group discussions over a particular current issue or a trending topic of choice. This could be an issue um, one of our writers are currently working on or an idea pitched by one of our listeners. If you like what you've heard so far and want to be featured on our channel or you have an idea for our next episode, simply drop drop us a line via any of our social media platforms like Instagram or Facebook or email us directly at uclasiaticaffairs at gmail.com. We're also constantly reviewing and trying to improve our techniques and so feel free to message us some feedback. We look forward to hearing from you. And finally, thank you so much for staying with us. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. We are Asiatic Affairs, and this is The Narratives of Asia.